Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. The SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period uh, with interviews featuring leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during the SALT Talks interview series is replicate the experience that we provided our SALT conference series uh, which takes place annually in Las Vegas, as well as internationally. Uh, and most recently we did it in Abu Dhabi. What we're really trying to do is provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future, as well as very uh, interesting investment ideas, and also provide a platform uh, for subject matter experts. Uh, today, we're very excited to welcome Boaz Weinstein to Salt Talks. Uh, Boaz is the founder and chief investment officer of Saba Capital Management. Uh, Boaz founded Saba in 2009 as a lift out of Saba principal. Uh, Mr. Weinstein leads a team of 30 professionals with the senior investment team having worked together for 17 years. Uh, prior to founding Saba, Boaz was the co-head of global credit trading at Deutsche Bank. In that role, he was responsible for overseeing a group of approximately 650 professionals, and he was a member of the Global Markets Executive Committee at Deutsche. Uh, throughout his career at Deutsche Bank, uh, Boaz had a dual responsibility for proprietary trading uh, and market making. In proprietary trading, he founded Saba Principal Strategies to specialize in credit and capital structure investing. As a market maker, he focused on credit default swaps, investment grade bonds, and high yield bonds. Uh, Boaz worked at Deutsche Bank for 11 years, the last eight uh, in which he operated as a managing director, a title he received at the age of 27. Boaz graduated from the University of Michigan. He's a Michigan man uh, with a bachelor in philosophy. He grew up in New York City and attended Stuyvesant High School, where he's currently on the board of directors. Uh, Boaz is also uh, on the leadership council for Robin Hood, which is a, a well-known New York charity that uh, is the largest New York charity fighting poverty uh, within the city. A reminder, if you have any questions for Boaz during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And conducting today's interview is gonna be Troy Gajewski, who's a partner senior portfolio manager and the co-chief investment officer at Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. And with that, I'll turn it over to Troy for the interview. Yeah, thanks, John. And thanks everybody for dialing in to Salt Talks. Uh, Boaz, it's an honor to have you on here today. And before we get into meat and potatoes of your investment opportunities and all the various complex uh, securities you're focused on, let's take it back a little bit, you know, growing up in New York, going to Michigan, how, how did you transition to Wall Street? Um, and then we can spend specific time on your career at Deutsche Bank, which is so formative for your success. Thank you, Troy. It's really a pleasure to speak with, with, uh, with you and, and everyone on today. Um, so my start on Wall Street really required, like many people's, a good deal of, of luck. I was interviewing like, like a lot of people might, you know, sending in a letter and you get the recruiting officer to, to, to do you the, the good service of, of meeting with you for 15 minutes. But as I was leaving, and this was at uh, Goldman Sachs, as I was leaving the interview, I went to use the restroom and lo and behold, in, uh, in the sinks uh, washing his hands was someone I had met once before who I hadn't even realized was the partner in charge of the high yield business for Goldman. And so were it not for that uh, moment, I, my start on Wall Street would have been quite a bit later. I had had a, a job after school um, with a, a very formidable mother-daughter duo at Merrill Lynch who are stockbrokers, but my real start on a trading floor came at Goldman. And, um, and so I did that each summer as an undergrad. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that, that brief color. But 
from from there going to uh, Deutsche Bank. I mean, I remember you back in the crisis days. You were a legend given the volume that you put on and the various complex trades. So you, you want to talk about how uh, that experience helped segue you to today and what particular lessons you learned while at DB? Sure, sure. So um, so all through my um, my early career on Wall Street, I'd, I'd been interested in more in technicals and quantitative strategies than pure fundamentals. And the credit market, when I started, Troy, was really, this is pre-credit derivatives, was really, you know, um, uh, analysis of what's the likelihood a company will get downgraded or it, or its cash flows will not be sufficient to pay back the debt. What's the, what's the, and there, it required a tremendous amount of um, knowledge about distressed and accounting and, and, um, uh, and less about the math. Whereas in other parts of fixed income, there was a lot of math, different spline models for government bond pricing and options models. And so I needed also the good luck of the credit market to, to mature enough to have a credit derivative market uh, in time for, for me and to be at a good place to do that. And so all of that uh, coalesced around 1998, where the credit market was still in the it, real tremendous infancy of the beginning of, of the derivative space, even though for foreign exchange, for equities, for lots of other asset classes, um, derivatives had been around since you know, the 70s or prior. And so when I was starting out at Deutsche in 1998, there really was no, there was no book on, on, on how to do things. Most of the credit investors, most of the market makers and traders knew the old way. And when credit default swaps came about, all of a sudden, um, going short was much easier than in the past. You didn't have to worry about a bond borrow. Um, you could set up curve trades that you couldn't really do efficiently. Um, and you could look at all sorts of strategies that some of which were borrowed from other asset classes and some of which were, were fairly new. Like, how do you really think about comparing a bond to equity options? And out of the money put on an equity is not all that different when you think about it from a bond in that in that it will only pay off when a dramatic giant sell-off has occurred and that put goes in the money. Similarly, in credit, even if a company goes from triple B to single B, if, if it doesn't default, you get par back. And so, so starting at the right time, starting at the right place, and then the third ingredient was also the volatility. So my vintage coming out of college and investing, you know, had I started five years earlier and markets had been really, um, uh, tranquil or, or in some period, if I'd exhibit, if I'd experienced um, a market with very little volatility, I'm sure that would have had its influence. Instead, the, the year that I really had um, uh, risk-taking capabilities in 1998 and onward, you know, we had the Russian default, long-term capital management blew up, and very soon thereafter, you know, there was plenty more, uh, not just 9-11, trading through that day of 9-11, but, um, but of course the defaults later that year of Enron and then the following year of WorldCom and all of everything that came after. So I was someone as a credit investor whose formative years were spent in volatile periods and that really made me much more interested in trying to find ways to capture um, to capture moments where you can own volatility where, or you could have a asymmetric position that will do well in a volatile environment. And that led to a lot of the things that we then developed. Gotcha. So obviously a combination of uh, brilliant minds with luck. And I'm glad you referenced that because especially in the tough times you're going into now, people tend to forget just how lucky we are to be in this industry and to be in the seat that you are today. So how did those formative years 
compare and prepare you for today? And, and what were the differences or similarities between, you know, the March, late February, March, early April debacle and some of the past historical market disasters you've managed through? Right. So the, the scale of the sell-off of COVID in, in February, March was so severe that, you know, people only are really comparing it to the Great Depression and to some extent 2008. And I've um, thought a lot about this, this question, not only, you know, um, since COVID uh, markets have calmed, but in that moment about what kind of market are we in? And so maybe one of the first things to say is that prior to um, the COVID sell-off or the COVID crash, whatever you want to call it, um, credit markets had been ultra stable, even in the face of moments of, of equity market volatility. So if you go back to 2018, when tech stocks had a giant run-up in January, a giant sell-off in February, you know, and the VIX blew out. And then later that year with China trade war stuff in Q4 18, there was again a giant blowout in equity markets, vol spiked, VIX, you know, went into the 40s and, and plus, and credit markets really held. And I think some of that was based for, on the right reasons, that if you have a booming economy, a low default rate, low yields in the world, everyone needs to find yield somewhere, that the credit market can be resilient, especially if it has been resilient. But the credit market to me is, I look at it also as a space where when spreads are low, that spread, we could call it spread, you know, yield, bond, you know, um, interest. Um, um, we can also look at it like premium. You're getting premium, and we can compare that to to other other environments, and to say that when the spreads are quite low, that you're still never going to earn more than that spread. You know, if you're an investor, lucky investor in Apple, or pick a super thriving company as a bondholder, you're never getting better than par and your coupons. And so, so for you. Um, volatility, uncertainty is just, it's a four letter word because you're never benefiting from it. Um, you, you never have the upside. You only have the asymmetry against you. And so I've tended um, over the years, especially to look at, vol at volatility as a sign for um, when credit spreads are overvalued. And so when credit spreads are too low, but volatility is high, and we'll get to that in a little bit, um, you can enter, you can think about your, um, the credit investment like you've sold an option at, at a spread that's just, just too low. And so in going through COVID, um, you know, what, what was, um, in many ways, it bore resemblance to um, past dramatic sell-offs in that credit did fall on a very heavy delta. So, so we did have, you know, credit markets, um, especially on the bond side, much less in derivatives, falling precipitously. Companies that pre-COVID were, you know, extremely well regarded. Let's take um, an Occidental Petroleum or go into the heart of the storm, a Royal Caribbean, for example, who had, both of them had very low credit spreads and they saw those credit spreads go not just 100% wider or 500% wider, but go 1,000 or 2,000% wider. And so um, in that world, um, credit fell for many companies very heavily compared to equity, sometimes even almost one for one. So quite different than 18 and quite different than in some other sell-offs. So in that sense, it more resembles 08. And, um, and I remember um, um, prior to uh, 2020, a lot of people talking about how in the next sell-off things would be worse because of the, the market dynamics, how the market had changed. The main way the market had changed in my view, in terms of the underlying participants, is that after 08, 
the banks took on a much less significant um, role, both in providing liquidity and in taking positions. And so people had speculated, well, who's filled in the gap? And, and if retail investors have filled in that gap and retail investors own all of these um, ETFs and mutual funds and BDCs and closed end funds, and if we are to have a big sell-off and now retail can get out on one day's notice from some of these products, and some of these products have leverage that causes them to have to sell in a downturn, but mutual funds and ETFs have to sell that day, that the, the rise of retail and the um, drop-off in banks as a shock absorber would create a problem. And so people talked about it for years, and we saw in 2020, I think the most meaningful thing was to see that in action. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, clearly, you know, not having the dealer desk step in to provide liquidity was a clear detriment to price action. But on the other side of that, obviously, the lack of participation from prop desk creates good opportunities for folks like yourself to trade, correct? That's right. Um, we saw things that people thought you ought not to see. So just a simple example, various ETFs, not even little ones. You know, I can name some giant ones like the BND, um, the, which is meant to replicate the bond index or the AG, the AGG. We're trading on the worst days of March at giant discounts to their net asset value, even as much as four or 5%, which is huge when you think about how- Unprecedented, yeah. And then there were ETFs that were trading at, at 15, 20% discounts. So we saw opportunities for funds like ourselves where dislocations were enormous, discounts on closed end funds, differences between skyrocketing equity vol and um, credit spreads. And so it has been uh, for us a, a historic, historically good year. Um, and, and I think the, maybe the most interesting part is even as I talk with you today and the markets in many ways have calmed, although we have an enormous amount of um, uncertainty to follow um, for the reasons we all know and some that maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring up, but, but even though markets have calmed, the dislocations really remain. Normally you see dislocation in the heat of the moment and then the market stabilizes and things go away. But, but to, even today you have some, some some things that I'm not used to seeing before. I'm really unaccustomed to certain relationships being so stretched in times when markets are near their highs. But again, part of that is back to lack of prop desk competition, right? In that you, you don't have these big balance sheets to step in and normalize the relationships, correct? A absolutely. Um, the they don't have guys like you, they don't have guys like you still on the street, right? You can go after it. Yeah, no, the, the, that's absolutely right. We have, had that phenomenon for for a decent amount of time. The banks did pull back, you know, um, more than a couple of years ago. So it's more like that's absolutely right. It's just it's just how dramatic it is. And we did see in February and March really the banks unwilling in many cases to provide liquidity. And as a result, things got especially stretched. Um, and so that's been great for um, for a number of funds like ourselves. Yeah. So, boss, that's a great summary into your insight into markets as they were then and as they are today. You know, on the fundamental side, we know you don't focus on this with all your research, but could you walk us through the path of high yield defaults that you see? I mean, we remember in March, April, you know, some of the forecasts were, you know, close to a trillion dollars between levered loans and high yield. Obviously, things aren't going to uh, become that bad, but just walk us through what you see fundamentally in terms of default rates, recovery rates, and high yield and levered loans. Right. Okay, so, so first, um, I'm glad you said recovery rates because it's one thing to talk about how many companies are defaulting, but what's been noticeable in this environment is the um, um, severe drop-off in recoveries. So there was just an auction 
uh, last week for Noble Energy, and the recovery on the bonds was literally one cent on the dollar. Um, a few, maybe six, seven weeks earlier, JCPenney defaulted. The recovery on those bonds was not one cent on the dollar. It was one eighth of one cent. So, um, so you know, we're getting rid defaults where they're almost counting one and a half or two for one. And, and so the severity, so if you think about your expected loss being the frequency something occurs times the severity, um, the, the recovery rate being very low is, uh, is, is really important to mention since that's actually you know, critical to how much uh, a long investor will lose. Um, the other thing is from a fundamental side is that the default rate didn't start ballooning right after COVID began. We already had last year some warning signs, whether it was Sears, you know, a retailer that finally was defaulting, but people wondered, is JCPenney not going to go down that path? Or um, uh, we had Dean Foods, that was kind of a, a, a surprise uh, if you look back a couple of years earlier. Um, so Parker Drilling, so energy space defaults. So we had a lot of defaults in 2019. In Europe, we had Thomas Cook, you know, 200 something year old company. Uh, and in, so in normal environments where credit spreads are ultra low, as they were, Troy, just you know, seven months ago, you normally have, in an ultra low credit spread environment, very little losses that, that you recently felt. But if somebody gets punched in the face seven times, you know, default after default in 2019, it's, what's kind of been interesting about the market is that the rest of the pool has not widened to compensate. What's, what's instead happened is that people get up on on Bloomberg and CNBC and talk about how there is no alternative, yields are at zero, and, um, and so you know, getting 3% spread in high yield isn't so bad. But what I think is really interesting from the fundamental credit side is if you look at defaults and recovery rates, not only were they high in 19, not only have they been defaults that is, not only are they super high in 2020, we've had 10 defaults this year in the, in the index that you know, bet the 100 names at best um, capture the high yield market on the on the derivative side, the 100 biggest companies, 10 of them defaulted this year, six last year. So, you know, not only have we had um, we had that happen, but if you look at the pool and you and you, um, you know, you look at it by quartile or however you like by decile, what you find is actually out of that 3% that the pundits say ain't so bad, disproportionate high portion of it is coming from distressed fallen angels. And I don't think when a credit investor says, I need yields, give me something that's three or four or 5% um, yield, I don't think they're, they're counting on uh, a bond trading at two cents on the dollar with a 500% yield to, um, to, 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 to be part of that return. They all understand that the yield is stretched because of those, because of those wide names. And so I think one of the hallmarks of the mispricing in 2020 in February, and it's coming back to again today, is people ignoring the heavy amount of fallen angels that sit in the investment grade pool and then are kicked out when they go to high yield, like an Occidental Petroleum or a Royal Caribbean, or the high yield pool that despite 10 defaults is still sitting there with another 10 companies that are very much in trouble, such as Transocean, uh, the ticker for that is RIG. To give you an example of even after those defaults, there's a lot more coming. And so, so I think that um, COVID, you know, fundamentally, um, it's, it's not going to be a smooth recovery if we even get as big a recovery as people expect. And what will be left behind are, are stressed companies that um, even in this bull market are exhibiting stress. You know, even American Airlines, and then I'll pause, American Airlines, which the president has been vociferously defending as we are going to protect American Airlines. Um, they're going to get financing that they need. 
the the equity market kind of believes it if you look at the market cap of American Airlines, there's still a lot of equity value. The credit market is very skeptical of American Airlines as evidenced by the enormous credit spread, the enormous probability of default that's being baked in. So, so high yields to me is, is really still a very interesting vulnerable space where optically the spread is exaggerated because of fallen angels. Gotcha, gotcha. So you know, given that focus, could you walk our viewers through some of the exciting trade opportunities that you had on earlier this year, you know, how they were monetized and then some of the better opportunities today? Sure. So when we, when we do that unpacking of, okay, here's the index, but what's going on beneath the index, you can find that um, back in February and to a large extent, even today, the, the best in the, in the index, the best quartile, if you will, um, is trading at such tight levels uh, let's take the high yield market for an example, where it's not, it's not that we're saying, oh, the credit market has totally wrong. We're, these are not good companies. It's just, this is the wrong price. And so to go back to February and then I'll go to today, there were situations where pure market technicals, which I wanna stress on this, on this, um, in this dis discussion we're having, I see this market as, even though you know, we, we can talk more about fundamentals and talk about the likelihood of the default rate, um, uh, um, staying high and so forth, I see the market driven um, very substantially compared to other times in my career by technicals. Who's doing what to whom? If Even if the credit spread ought to be at X, sometimes you'll hear a market maker at a Goldman Sachs say, well, because it's included in this index and because this index is being heavily sold or heavily bought, or there's an arbitrage on this index and there are not enough guys like you to buy protection, um, credit spreads on certain companies that are technically offered or bid can trade at dramatically different levels than their fundamentals. And so we've been focused less on fundamentals in, this, in these last few months because we see the market being almost dominated other than for real workout distress situations where, of course, it's going to be about what actually happens. But in the meantime, technicals are driving a lot of the market. So, so for example, in February, the, the quartile, the best quartile of the high yield market was trading at a credit spread of 46 basis points. 46 basis points, we all know is a very low number. It happens to be even lower than the average investment grade. And so when we looked in that quartile, we saw some double B companies that were not on their way to triple B. They were either going to stay at double B, they had double B leverage metrics, others credit metrics, or they were maybe on their way to single B. And so as an example, you know, why, how could companies like, um, uh, Sabre to take a, a online travel company. How could Sabre simultaneously in February be trading at the same credit spread as McDonald's or IBM? You know, McDonald's and IBM, we can wonder, are they going to re retain their past glory? They're never going to default in any kind of reasonable, you know, world, but a double B company shouldn't really trade at where IBM is trading. And so we bought protection on companies like Sabre which also included United Airlines, and it included lots of things unaffected by COVID, but were just too darn tight, and sold protection on companies that we thought were safe, like IBM. Now, let me just say for three seconds, IBM was trading where it was trading not on fundamentals, but because they had acquired Red Hat, the banks needed to offload that risk. And again, the banks didn't think IBM was a problem credit, but they just needed to buy the protection. And so we have this world that I've never seen in my career where double B, single B companies are trading at the same spread as Verizon, IBM, Disney, AT&T. And so we constructed a long short portfolio of 
what we would call, you know, valuable tail protection paid for, but by what we would view as um, very poor tail protection, i.e. the McDonald's um, Disney example. And so that worked, you know, exceptionally well in the, in the, in the um, sell-off and not just COVID type of names like, um, like Royal Caribbean. Uh, and even today in this melt up that we've had in the last couple of months, we again have credits that are, it's, it's either or, it's either they're trading super tight or you have these exceptions that are dominating the spread. And so one way to finalize that, and then I'll talk about a live opportunity, is that if you compare credit spreads one year ago to today, you find that in the zero to 40 bucket, um, this was a chart I saw recently from Barclays, in the zero to 40 basis point bucket, what, today there are far more credits, 20% more, 20% in the index more is now in that bucket, in that ultra low bucket, and every other bucket until the widest bucket has less constituents because they've all moved to the, the, the ultra low or they're the problem names like a Royal Caribbean or an Occidental. So you have this kind of all or none society um, where the average is a, is a moderate credit spread, but you're really in this, you know, you're either at, at zero degrees or you're at 200 degrees. And so, so when we unpack that, we find a lot of interesting trade ideas. So today, you know, we still see opportunities to short double B rated companies at double digit spreads and go long very safe single A companies like AT&T in our view is, which is triple B, but is not in danger of getting downgraded anytime soon. And if it did, it's almost a bigger deal for the high yield market than for AT&T um, and pairing those together. So that, that's one type of idea. And then I have a very brief um, idea to talk about with American Airlines if we have time for it. Boys, we always have time for you and American Airlines. You know, you, you reference President Trump. We have an election coming up. Uh, let's talk about that American Airlines opportunity. So, you know, we found it through our screens, um, but I've also had some friends in the industry, one in particular, like who are, who's less involved in credit, asking me what I thought, because, you know, the thing about cap structure trades, American Airlines credit against equity, it can look good in a screen. It can look good at time zero, but a cap well, you want to step you want to step back for one second and, and explain what a cap structure arb trade looks like. Not everyone is as familiar with it as you. Thank you, Troy. You're, you're, uh, uh, that's a good idea. So so for many people, cap structure would simply mean I go along one part of the capital structure, which in the continuum starts at equity and then you have um, preferred and then you have subordinated and and senior unsecured and senior secured first lien second lien so there's different levels of security at the um, in the debt um, and so you might pick one safe thing or unsafe thing and trade one against the other and one of the nice things about that strategy is it's the same company you don't have to worry did you get like one company you know long short one company versus another company right um, it's it's the same company so that's interesting. And for many people, it's, um, you know, secured debt might be attractive compared to unsecured debt. In American Airlines, um, what, what we think is, is really interesting is that um, uh, what, even though a cap structure trade can be tricky because the company can change its capital structure, a company, of course, can issue debt to buy back stock or issue, you know, stock to buy back debt or, or something in between, um, the, the way the, the uncertainty should work in this environment, if you look back to 08 with what happened with um, AIG or Fannie Mae or other kind of bailouts, is that generally the, um, the equity might be left for naught. Uh, we had that, of course, with, with Bear Stearns and uh, a bunch of other situations where the equity either gets heavily diluted or bought for very little by the, um, the entity that's 
uh, taking it over or providing the financing to it. And, um, and so, so what we've noticed is interesting about American Airlines, and I saw um, uh, Seth Carmen wrote something similar in one of his letters about AMC Entertainment, the movie theater company, is that you've seen the debt fall really precipitously. And in some cases, the stock is as high as it was, or um, not in American Airlines case, but you see where the stock really hasn't fallen very much from, um, from pre-COVID. So American Airlines today has an enormous market cap. Um, now, it, it was certainly higher beforehand, but it's obviously producing losses each and every day. And, um, and so you have all this equity value left over for the stockholder. And what's at odds with that is that the debt, you can find pretty short dated bonds trading like they're going to default, whether it's a three or four year bond at 40 or 50 cents on the dollar, or it's a secured loan, first lien loan, where you have some of the best um, collateral in that loan, whether it's the gates at Heathrow or, you know, whatever it may be. And those loans have fallen very hard down from par down to 60 cents on the dollar, where even if the company were to default, um, they, those loans might still uh, not be down from here. And so, so in a trade like that, what we're doing lately is pairing those things, is buying that the, the cheapest part of the debt side and hedging it with puts on the equity. And so in that case, um, there are a number of hedge funds, I think, that are willing to go long American Airlines debt, but they want a hedge, they want an out. And for us, that's um, downside protection through the stock. And so that's an example of um, one trade that is a household name. I'm not, you know, everyone's heard of American that um, stands out to us as, as really unusual. Wow, that, that's an interesting opportunity. It takes me back to the 2003 days where you had tremendous cap structure arm opportunities, right? Before the, again, the dominance of distressed hedge funds. So people forget, but that 08-09 period, there weren't a lot of uh, cap structure arm opportunities, certainly not like the one you're describing today. Uh, so that brings us to a point of the disconnect that some see between certain pockets of credit markets and equity markets. You gave that very localized example, but is this a general trend you're seeing across companies that are at risk of bankruptcy? You know, credit investors saying one thing and equity investors saying something else? Actually, American stands out because there aren't a lot of opportunities like that. What, what does stand out, and this will um, make, this will resonate, I think, with a lot of people uh, watching, is that we've seen equity volatility, the cost of buying those puts or calls, equity volatility is actually the thing that today remains very elevated. So if you just think about the VIX, which you know is, is, is the fear gauge, you, know, you can't go a, an hour or two without someone talking about it um, uh, in the financial uh, press, the VIX, which had touched single digits and was ultra low a mere three, four years ago, um, today is at a level that would suggest rough markets ahead, or at least lots of uncertainty. So the VIX at one point last week was back in the 30s. Today it's at 25. So I think the high level of equity vol is at extreme odds with the low level of credit spreads. Let's go back to my earliest point that as a credit investor, you're not getting paid for the volatility. You're never going to do better than your yield minus your, you know, the default rate um, and the, 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 the loss that those defaults um, cause. And so you have a very capped return when credit spreads are low. It's a low number and you're there for presumably for safety and for yield. The higher the volatility is, and you can look at the equity market as, you know, a, a reasonable, um, uh, efficient market, uh, 
the high the equity volatility is telling you there's a lot of uncertainty. And then you scratch your head and say, well, do, do I agree with that? Yes, Troy, you and I together could probably cite a dozen things, at least three or four that are, you know, highly uncertain. Um, if there's a democratic sweep, will the will capital gains taxes go up? Will corporate taxes go up enough to cause some high yield companies to have problems who otherwise might have um, might have not? Um, will will or, the or how about will we get any fiscal stimulus that people thought would arrive by August fifteenth at the latest? Right. That's 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 in my top five as well. I mean, and then there's this: is the you know people are confident there's going to be a COVID vaccine, but that doesn't mean certain companies that are, are really suffering are going to really benefit and maybe not in time. If we could have this many defaults in the first half of the year, you know, um, and the market is now pricing almost very few to come. So you make that list, you include things like China, the tension with China, um, uh, you know, and, and you and you look at um, the level of vol and you say, well, look, I can see why the next few months are going to be volatile. And so when I look at the um, across cap structure, I have never seen so many cases where credit spreads are almost back to where they were pre-February and equity vol just remains 20, 30, 40 points higher than it was pre-February. And while we can rationalize it based on the scary uncertainty to come in markets, which by the way, as an equity investor, you know, is, is also something to think about, but at least in equities we've seen in the last few months, you have enormous upside and certainly that's even without picking the right stocks. So equities offer somewhat of a symmetric investment, in fact, asymmetric, because they can go up more than 100% as any Tesla shareholder can tell you. And so, so the asymmetry, volatility is not a bad word for, for stocks. It is for, for credit, especially when credit spreads are low. So, um, so I think the kind of standout point about markets right now is the ultra high level of vol, which can be explained by vol funds having blown up in March. It can be explained by you know the the macro factors you and I just talked about. Um, but it is impossible, in my view, to rationalize the ultra high level of vol and the ultra low level of credit spreads, save again for the fallen angels. Yeah, it's amazing to look at the uh, on the run high yield index back to 360 over, right? I mean, who thought we'd see that so soon after uh, February and March, right? Tribute to the Fed's balance sheet and massive money supply expansion, right? Yeah, it, that's right. But, you know, there's this survivor bias in credit where it's 360 over and that pool is 360 with 10 names having been removed that caused investors right. a seven point, you know, a seven point hit. And that 360 has Transocean trading at you know 9,000. Pull out pull out Transocean. That 360 goes to three um, 338 or so, and then you pull yeah. out another one. So so that's the that's the interesting thing is that spreads. Are, it's amazing what's happened. I totally agree, and it's even more amazing than that because spreads are are in this winner take all. It's either trading like gold or it's trading like it's going to default. You know, not to exaggerate the point. So I think um, with a little bit of detective work, you can with very low recovery rate too. Don't don't forget the recovery rate as well. With the very low recovery rate, and so you're going to end up in a place where actually credit. You were really betting that the deeply distressed companies were not going to default, and I don't think that's what investors are trying to do. Because let me say it this way: out of that 360, the top half of the index, the better half, is only giving you about 130. So, you know, if I, if I said to you, Troy, hey, would you like this high quality, high yield portfolio, you can get 1.3%. You might say the spread, you might say, I think I have better things to do with my money, but it get, that gets lost a little bit. And when, again, when people talk about it as a, as a big blob, when it's um, so um, disparate.
So Boaz, last question before we turn it over to the audience, but you're a legendary poker player. You know, I couldn't let you go without pointing that out. You just talked about how expensive equity vol is and how cheap credit vol is. Would you be brave enough now to sell equity vol and buy credit vol or is that just too, too dangerous of a trade expression? Um, well, so I, I, I enjoy poker. I'm actually quite a bit better at some other games. Um, and, is that right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I think, um, you know, there are no ways to really trade credit single name as from a, through options. There's no, it's interesting. There are no equity, like in equities, there are puts and calls. You don't have that in IBM credit. You have it in IBM equity. And so I, t I look at credit like this asymmetric thing that if you're long credit, you're short vol. And if you're short, you're long vol. And it's a question of price. And that price, what we have found lately is that for companies, I'll give one example, Devon Energy, DVN, it went 500 wider in, into March and it went 450 tighter back. It, it went enormous, 500 wider, 500 basis points for five years is 25 points, five, 500 times five. You PV that to today, it's about a 22 point move we had back in Q1 and a, a kind of a, a 20 point recovery. And, and so the credit spread is very low. We recently saw that it, um, that it could be very high. We saw that in 2016 as well. The equity vol is very high. So what we've been doing is buying CDS on companies like Devon and funding it by selling out of the money equity puts. I've never done that in my career because it was never interesting to do it. The great part about the trade is that for, if you wanted to get rid of your negative carry for every hundred million, for example, that you would short of the credit, you only need to go long about four or 5 million through the equity. So it's an enormous ratio and it, it will behave very well in a sell-off. And what we've been seeing lately with the declining price of oil, our energy stocks come under pressure again and whether it's Occidental Petroleum or Devon. Um, and so we think, especially in the energy space, some of this very low credit spread, high equity vol is an opportunity to set up a pair trade as you were alluding to, Troy. Yeah, so for, that's, that's interesting. First time in your career, it's been this inefficient. That's, that's remarkable. So well, boys, I'm gonna turn it back over to my partner, John Darcy, who's gonna read off some of the questions from the audience. And if we don't get enough questions from the audience, you and I can keep talking for quite a bit longer, I'm sure. Sure. I feel like uh, you guys could go on for a couple more hours, no problem. But uh, and blackjack is Boaz's game. Come on, Troy. <laughs> oh um, man, my memories—it's it's not what it used to be. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about closed-end funds for a moment, Boaz. They've received a lot a lot of attention for activism and discounts in recent years, and you've been sort of in the the middle of that mix, uh, pushing for some restructuring in the space. Are there still arbitrage opportunities in the closed-end fund space, or are those starting to go away? Well, so the closed-end fund space has plenty of arbitrage opportunities today. When I got into it about seven years ago, I thought that all fixed-income closed-end funds, or at least most of them, would trade very similarly. In the end, a pool of 500 bonds and loans managed by BlackRock or you know PIMCO or Putnam, they're not going to behave that differently, so why should... Why should the funds, why should they trade it at, um, at different levels of discount? But starting in 2013, closed-end funds, after a few years where they were trading at their net asset value or at a premium, you could buy closed-end funds at a deep discount. And I like the idea of buying a dollar of assets that I already wanted, like high yield in a world of low yield, to be able to buy something 
that it's not my valuation that a dollar is something I'm buying for 90 cents or 85 cents, but that actually the same valuation tool that's used for ETFs, used for mutual funds, is same thing for, for closed-end funds, the same pricing source. And so it was unambiguous that closed-end funds were trading at this true discount. And so what was interesting to me was that some of them would trade at plus one and some of them would trade at minus 15. Jeff Gunlack would trade at minus 12, then you know, he'd talk about it or Barron's would write about it and it'd go to plus one. And so I liked that this wasn't a discount that was just structural. There are a lot of things where people say, hey, this is cheap. And the response back is, that's been cheap for the last 15 years or that's been cheap for the last five years. Closed-end funds were something that were attractive that we, we felt we could do something about. And so in, um, in the last seven years, we've, we've built a business out of um, trading them um, analyzing them and also finding situations where the rights of shareholders are such that if we accumulate a large enough stake that we can uh, have a positive outcome for all investors where either they turn the closed-end fund into an open-ended fund as BlackRock did for us um, and other investors this year um, we had to take them to court uh, but two of the funds that we we um, uh, we sued them over they ended up in our view, doing a great thing for shareholders by merging them, these municipal funds, with their open-ended funds. And all shareholders saw an immediate gain and a, and a permanent gain as the discount went away. So as I talked to you today, John, um, we're buying some closed-end funds at 16 or 17% discounts to their, to their fair value. Um, more often, it's more like 13 or 14. And to me, that's an enormous discount. And again, a world of very low yields where the discount gives you some extra yield and hopefully Saba's um, activities will cause that discount to converge to net asset value, something we've done um, this year particularly uh, uh, successfully in getting managers to, um, in our view, not think about their AUM and their fees, but think about their suffering shareholders. Switching gears a little bit, we certainly don't have a shortage of audience questions and thank you everybody who's, who's tuned in for your engagement. Private equity firms have been shown to be more likely to overload their businesses uh, with debt, with weak covenants. And we've seen several examples of that recently with things like Chuck E. Cheese or Serta Simmons. Do you view sponsor-backed capital structures as more likely to default? And are the weaker uh, credit profiles of sponsor-backed companies priced into CDS markets effectively? You know, that's certainly the case that a number of the defaults that have occurred um, in the last couple of years have been LBO related. Um, but also some of them had the wherewithal because of their sophistication in capital markets in terming out the debt. Um, I think back to Texas Utilities being a company, uh, the KKR LBO, where, where people thought Texas Utilities ought to default, but it was able to continue on for years trying to you know, do diff various different kinds of um, financial engineering, bond exchanges. And so, um, so I don't have a view of any kind of negative view about you know, private equity um, and, uh, and it's not even my expertise, but, but it is true that, um, that when you add a lot of leverage to companies and then you go through a downturn, some of them are going to default. And so, um, so you know, if, if for, the for the question, if it means if highly levered um, companies, uh, is it, I don't have a view if it's too much. Um, I think that, that private equity has certainly added great value in, in, in many examples as well. And I look at some of the defaults this year, um, you know, whether, whether it's Hertz, which was trading great until a few months before COVID or Chesapeake Energy or JCPenney, these are not um, the result of, of uh, private equity.
We'll leave you with one last question uh, from the audience. How do you explain the difference in you know, your recent success strategy buying uh, CDS versus some of the experiences that you had in 2008 prior to leaving Deutsche Bank? So I think that um, our portfolio is certainly different. It's been uh, 12, 12 years and, um, and also we might have learned a thing or two, but you know, every sell-off is, is different. And I think um, 2008 was, was its own thing in that people were worried the financial system was, was ending. I actually think back now to that, to that September period. Um, I was actually at the New York Fed representing Deutsche Bank uh, as being the co-head of the credit business. I was there that weekend when, when Lehman was unraveling and really relative value trades, which has been the hallmark of our business, were unraveling just like everything else, even if they were, even if it was reasonable to own secured debt and be short unsecured, everything was um, was suffering because people were worried that leave aside Lehman and Bear, that that Merrill Lynch, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were not going to be there. Uh, and so a lot of relationships got out of whack. I think I think the um, the Fed and other entities and government have done a great job to reduce that risk. So now when we trade in credit default swaps, for example, there is a clearinghouse that trades all of the index product and a lot of single names available to mitigate counterparty risk. And so, so I'd say this crisis, you know, hearkening back to Troy's question about how this is different, is also different in that the banks were not on people's radar for being the problem. People think think about the last six months. No one was talking about you know what's in the books at uh, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And I think that that um, you know that's that's one important difference. And um, uh, and I, I also think our portfolio is um, is well suited today and and uh, for the last few years for volatile moments, um, even more th so than in the past. Well, Boaz, thanks so much for such a great wide-ranging conversation. Troy, do you have any final words or thoughts for Boaz before we let him go? No, Boaz, just a simple question for investors. If you think of the opportunity maybe to be long protection as of February 1st for the benefit of hindsight, which is probably a 10, versus the relative value opportunities you're seeing today, would you rate them more of a five, meaning great return prospects but not explosive? How would you think about that? Tough question to answer, but. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so tough because, because if, I, if we talked in January and I said, you know, it's incredible, you and any other reasonable person would say, but, how do, but maybe it won't be three years before anyone cares. You know, if, if, if the markets are just gonna be a sea of tranquility, what does it matter that this was mispriced to that? Um, and so now the, the credit protection in many cases is back to pre-COVID levels um, and we can explain it by the Fed and, and lots of other, you know, reasons. Um, but, but the cat's kind of out of the bag that such giant sell-offs like we saw can occur. And even though the Fed has, dealt, has um, dug deep into their toolkit to come up with a broad set of things that people didn't expect, I think that um, the, high, you know, the high level of default that we're seeing in, in high yields, uh, even if it's abating to some extent, the, we are in a much more troubled time today than I think everyone would agree than we were six, nine months ago. And so I think that 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 relative value trade of short, you know, what short high yield and long safe investment grade, I think it's as good as it was before. Even if the level's a little worse, the circumstances are a lot better. And the relative value remains, I'd say, considerably better than it was a year ago. That doesn't mean our trades are going to work out, you know, eight out of 10. Um, but just the entry points into 
via closed end funds that John asked me about, you know, buying stuff at 14 is a whole lot better than buying stuff at nine or 10 as we had in January. So, so RV is more attractive for sure. And the kind of tail protection, um, you could argue it both ways that it's a little bit more expensive, but I would argue adjusted for the risk, it's probably as good or better. Great, well, thank you so much. That was very concise.